This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, good afternoon and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary year. And here's to the next 30th. I'm Jackie McGlone. I mean, I hope we shall all be here then. <laughs> I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist, and it's a, I'm very pleased today to be introducing Tracy Chevalier to you. Tracy Chevalier is the author of seven novels, including the international bestseller Girl with a Pearl Earring, which has sold more than four million copies worldwide and was adapted into an Oscar-nominated movie starring Colin Firth and Scarlett Johansson, as well as a West End stage production. Born in Washington, D.C., Tracy moved to England in 1984. She worked for several years as a reference book editor before graduating in 1994 from the University of East Anglia with an M.A. in creative writing. Tracy's historical novels are renowned for her rich evocations of times past, from her first book, The Virgin Blue, to Girl with a Pearl Earring, Falling Angels, The Lady with the Unicorn, Burning Bright, and Remarkable Creatures, which is also to be filmed. We hope. <laughs> we hope. Well, they take a long time, don't yes. they? Yes. She comes to us today with her seventh book, the Last Runway. I'm afraid this is a, a proof copy, but um, it, you get the idea. <laughs> um, which is set in, in... The Last Runway is set in 1850s Ohio. It's the first book Tracy has set in her native United States. The central character of The Last Runway is Honor Bright, a self-contained, fastidious Quaker girl newly arrived from Dorset in Ohio. Jilted and broken-hearted, Honor has accompanied her livelier sister Grace, who is to marry her fiancé in America. But Grace dies of fever, and Honor is alone in a strange land. When she moves in with Grace's fiancé and his widowed sister-in-law, Abigail, she feels even more like an outsider in a primitive frontier world where runaway slaves pass through seeking freedom, hotly pursued by hard-hearted bounty hunters in the pay of the slave owners. The story of The Last Runaway is miraculously detailed, told with all the precision and subtle artistry that Honor Bright, who is also a crack seamstress, brings to her quilting. Of The Last Runway, the Independent on Sunday's reviewer wrote, Chevalier always writes to terrific visual effect, incorporating her extensive research into her novels, and this one's no different. She has woven a rich tapestry here. And the novelist Rose Tremaine simply believes The Last Runway, Runaway is the best thing Tracy has written since Girl with a Pearl Earring. So ladies and gentlemen, Tracy Chevalier. <laughs> Uh, Tracy, I've given a very potted version of what happens in The Last Runaway, mm -hmm. but I wondered if you'd like to read um, for yep. us so that um, everyone can get, a f those who haven't read it yet yep. and have this great pleasure ahead of them, um, they can get a sense of the book, please. Of course. Um, I wanted to say first that I, uh, it's a delight to be back. and. Um, when I came up this morning on the train from London, I, uh, I got here and I had lunch with a quilter. And uh, I, I was, we were, she was interviewing me, but we talked so much about quilts, I completely forgot that I was actually being interviewed. I think Jane did too. Jane, you're here somewhere. And it was, uh, it was a real joy, and I wanted to ask if there are any other quilters in the audience. Yes. Yes, I thought there might be. Because Jane said that there, there might be, and I thought, for you, I have specially chosen a scene to read, which is a is is about a quilt that saves honor um, uh, at the beginning of the book, because um, I thought you'd enjoy that. Uh, so what I'm going to do is read from a section right at the beginning. Uh, honor is now in Ohio, 
her sister has died, and that happens on like page 10, so it doesn't really matter that you know, because it's not really giving that much away. It's not a spoiler. Um, and she is uh, in a wagon getting a lift from a stranger, an old man named Thomas. And they're going through, cutting through Ohio, these rutted tracks she's expecting. She's used to Dorset, which has been cultivated for thousands of years and is green and has hedgerows and Ohio is just one big woods with a, a, a rutted track through it. So she finds that very difficult. And then um, she hears foot, hoof beats. She hears a horse coming behind them and this is what happens. And I also wanna say that I have to use a word here which is historically accurate but abhorrent for me to have to say because I was brought up never ever, it's probably the worst word you can ever use, but I have to do it. So um, I just wanted to warn you, it's not a word I would normally use. Then the rider was upon them. He pulled up next to the wagon and Thomas stopped the gray mare. Honor wiped her eyes and glanced at the man before folding her hands in her lap and fixing her gaze on them. By the way, I can't do accents. So um, I can sound American, she's English. She's gonna speak and yeah, you will hear, you will hear my Southern accent, which is also pretty laughable, but I can't even, I'm not even gonna try to do the English accent. Okay, I'm gonna start again. There we go. Then the rider was upon them. Honor wiped her eyes and glanced at the man before folding her hands in her lap and fixing her gaze on them. Even sitting on a horse, it was clear he was very tall with the leathery, tanned skin of a man who spends his life outdoors. Light brown eyes stood out of his square, weathered face. He would have been handsome if there were any warmth to his expression, but his eyes were flat in a way that sent a chill through her. She was suddenly very aware of their isolation on this road. Honor doubted, too, that Thomas carried a gun, like the one prominent on the man's hip. If Thomas had similar thoughts, he did not reveal them. Afternoon, Donovan he said to the newcomer. The man smiled. Old Thomas ain't a Quaker gal, is it? He reached over and pulled at the rim of Honor's bonnet. As she jerked her head away, he laughed. Just checking. You can tell the other Quakers you know not to bother dressing up niggers in Quakers' clothes. I'm on to that one. That trick's old. Can we help you with something, Thomas said. If not, we have to get along. We have a long road ahead. You in a rush now, are you? Where are you headed? I'm taking this young woman with me back to Wellington, Thomas said. She has come to Ohio from England, but lost her sister in Hudson to yellow fever. You can see from her tears that she's in mourning. You from England? Honor nodded. Say something then. I always like the accent. Go on, say something. What, you too proud to talk to me? Say, how do you do, Donovan? Rather than remain silent and risk his insistence turning to anger, Honor looked into his amused eyes and said, How does thee, Mr. Donovan? How does I? I does just fine, thank ye. No one there called me Mr. Donovan in years. You Quakers make me laugh. What's your name, gal? Honor Bright. You gonna live up to your name, Honor Bright? A little kindness to a girl who has just buried her sister in a strange land, Thomas intervened. What's in that? Donovan switched his tone suddenly, gesturing to Honor's trunk in the wagon bed. Miss Bright's things. I'll just have a look in it. That trunk's the perfect size for a hidden nigger, Thomas frowned. It is not right for a man to look in a young lady's trunk. Miss Bright will tell you herself what's in it. Don't you know that Quakers don't lie? Faster than she could have imagined, Donovan jumped from his horse and onto the wagon. Honor felt a dart of fear in her gut, for he was so much bigger, faster, and stronger than her and Thomas. When Donovan discovered the trunk was locked, that fear made her pass over the key, which she kept on a long green ribbon around her neck during the long journey. Donovan opened the lid and lifted out the quilt Honor had brought to America. She expected him to set it aside, but instead he shook it out and draped it over the wagon bed. What's this? He asked, squinting at it. I never seen writing on a quilt. It's a signature quilt, Honor explained. Friends and family made squares and signed them. It was a gift to mark my move to America, to say goodbye. Donovan studied the quilt for so long that Honor began to wonder if she'd said something wrong. 
My mother made comforts, he said at last, running his fingers over a name. Nothing like this, though. Hers had a big star in the center made out of lots of little diamonds. That pattern is called Star of Bethlehem. Is it now? Donovan looked at her. His brown eyes had thawed a little. I have made that pattern myself. They're not easy because it is difficult to fit the points of the diamond together, the points of the diamonds. The sewing must be very accurate. Thy mother must have been skilled with her needle. Donovan nodded, then grabbed the quilt and stuffed it back in the trunk. Locking it, he jumped down from the wagon. You can go. Without a word, Thomas flicked the reins and the gray mare sprang into life. A minute later, Donovan rode up alongside them. You settling in Wellington? No, Honor answered. Faithwell, near Oberlin. My late sister's fiance is there. Oberlin, Donovan spat, then pressed his heels into the stallion's belly and flew past them. His horse's hoofbeats remained in the air, quieter and quieter, for many minutes until they at last faded away. All right now, Thomas said softly. Stamping twice, he flicked the reins over the mare's back again. He did not hum, however, for the rest of the journey. It was only miles later that Honor, Honor realized Donovan had not given her back the key to her trunk. If you want to find out how he gets, she gets the key back, you got to read it. Okay. Thank you, Tracy. Sure. Uh, quilting is a wonderful metaphor for a novelist, is it not? It is, although you do want to avoid that temptation to say, you know, life is a patchwork yeah, quilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try not to go down that route, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. early on when I was doing my research, I knew I wanted my characters to do something with their hands. Because in most of my books, I try to find something that they make or do. It was been fossil hunting or painting or weaving or making buttons, something that, that anchors them in, in a daily activity that um, maybe we can try to relate to or, or understand a little bit. And I chose quilting because I knew that both English and American women at the time, many of them would have made them in their, in their leisure time, in their moments of uh, where they're at night when they don't have anything else to do, which is not that often because they're very, very busy trying to keep alive. But they did have to make them in order to stay warm. And I, um, so I started looking into it. And then I decided I needed to um, learn how to make them myself in order to be able to write about it accurately. And I found uh, when I was doing research that I, um, this style between, I mean, this book is a lot about the difference between English and American people. And uh, the style of quilt at that time was very different. English patchwork, which is very intricate, and you, you wrap, if anybody's ever tried quilting here, you usually start out by doing grandmother's garden, which is these hexagons. Your mother, your grandmother taught you, you get a little uh, piece of paper that is in a hexagon, and then you fold, the, um, you fold the cloth around it, and then you sew those all together in these rosettes, these flowers, and then you put them all together. And that's one of the f things you start out with. And you have to sew quite accurately. You have to cut accurately. It's all quite anally retentive, shall we say. And um, American quilting at the time was much more, uh, in Ohio, in 1850s, was, uh, there was a craze for these, what they call red and white quilts, which is applique. So you take like a, quite a big square of white, and you applique onto it flowers in red and green, green leaves, in these, in these patterns. And it's actually quicker and, and it, I mean some people say applique is harder some people say it's easier than patchwork but it's certainly quicker and you can make a quilt like that much quicker than you could the patchwork and so when Honor first arrives in America she sees these quilts and thinks oh how vulgar you know oh American women they're so vulgar and and uh, they like the flashy and the thing is after a while it takes her a whole book to sort of accept that people just have different styles and there's nothing wrong with a red and white quilt um, and in fact, in some ways, it's more practical because you can make it a lot quicker and it, ha and it looks good on a bed. So um, it's, it's a matter of, uh, whereas, you know, the, the Americans uh, see the way she makes this patchwork and it's also kind of anally retentive and they think to themselves in a 19th century way, how anally retentive of her. And so <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of a healthy disrespect between the two cultures. And I thought the quilts kind of um, displayed that well. You made a quilt. 
I did, I did. I, I uh, took a class and then I joined a quilting group, which I still belong to. Um, we meet every Monday. Uh, I try to come as often as I can. And um, I, uh, through the course of the research, I made a reasonably simple four patch quilt with, um, it's about the, it's like a lap quilt. I use it on the sofa. And um, I, it's all by hand because I don't know how to use a sewing machine. And also I wanted to do what my, my, what my character does. So by doing it, I really learned a lot about the rhythm of quilting, of sewing, of, of little mistakes, mistakes you can make, how you fix them how you um, backstitch instead of not, things like that. And I would never have known any of that. Um, and, and now I'm kind of hooked on it. And one of the things I really love about it is it, it puts me in a nonverbal place. You know, I spend so much of my life talking um, and reading and writing. It's all about words. And mm -hmm. quilting is all about creating something that's nonverbal. And when you're making it, when you're sewing, you, you get into a kind of nonverbal state. And it's contemplative and quiet, and, and I love that. So I'm very glad to have begun it. And it reminds me a little bit of my, when I was uh, researching Remarkable Creatures, my last book, I went fossil hunting on the beach a lot. And you also get into that nonverbal state, and that's when you can find the fossils. It's like when you're thinking too much, you don't see them. It's when you really let go and, that you can start to see them, um, the fossils stand out from the rest of the rocks. Is that how it works when you write? Uh, n not exactly, because writing is very verbal. No, no, I meant uh, sometimes just detaching yourself from it and, and not thinking too much about yes. it. Yes, And then you, you suddenly true. find the answer to a, a problem or a tricky situation that yes. you might be in with, with the book. I think certainly the most successful writing is when you're not so self-conscious, when you're just doing it and you're not worrying about every mm. word. You're just, you just think, oh, that, yeah, go with that and just, just do it. You just mm. do it. And then afterwards you can make that judgment about whether it's any good or not. Mm. Um, and a lot of times it isn't good, but I think the best stuff is simple and un, unthought of, you know, just straightforward. A very quick question before we go on to talk um, more about um, silence and so on, which is so important in the book. Um, which, uh, which form did you make your quilt in, American or English? I cheated. I did a kind of, um, it wasn't with patchwork templates, but it was, it was of squares, four squares put together into bigger squares, and then those were put together. So it's a little bit, a little bit of patchwork but it's and it's not applique but it's uh, it's on a kind of it's not in the anally retentive mode it's more in the letting it rip mode so it was a, but but that's so me because I uh, you know I'm obviously American you can hear but I've lived here almost 30 years mm -hmm. and I have a an American passport and a UK passport and I feel like I'm a little bit of both so it, it's uh, the quilt suited me the, the book um, is the first one, I, as I mentioned, that you've set in America. Yeah. And Honor's experience, in, in a way, mirrors your own, doesn't it, in reverse, yeah. in, in that you came here and she goes there. Um, so did, you, did that lead you to play around with the differences between the two countries? Because obviously yeah. we're talking hundreds of years, well, 150, well, more years apart. but. Nonetheless, you, do you still feel those differences definitely. apply? Yeah, in, in, some ways, in some ways, definitely. And um, when I was researching, I started to look for accounts of um, English people who had gone to America and what they thought of Americans. And two books influenced me the most. One was by Charles Dickens. Um, he did what you could call the first book tour. In 1842, mm. he went over to the States and uh, he gave readings, and he kept a diary, a journal of his time, and he, he, he published it as a, a book called American Notes. And it's really hilarious. Um, from his account of his seasickness, uh, The Voyage Over, where he, he likens him and his companions are in the cabin to like rolling around like bottles on a, on a, in a barrel um, they, they, during the, the, the storms. Um, to uh, the, the manners of the Americans he encounters. Yeah, he's on a train at one point, and a man just comes and stands in the door. He doesn't say hello, and he keeps saying, you know, Americans never say hello. Why don't they say hello when they meet you? But they just come stand, look him up and down, and then spat. And they're spitting, uh, chewing tobacco and spitting was very common in, at that time. And both uh, Dickens and also the other book I read, 
It was called Domestic Manners of the Americans by uh, Francis Trollope. And uh, Frances Trollope was the mother of Antony Trollope. And for reasons best known to herself, she went over in 1828 to Cincinnati, Ohio um, to open a dress shop. Who knows why? She left some of her kids behind, took some with her, and she kept a journal. The dress shop didn't do well, but she kept a journal of her time there in which she talks a lot about the spitting and how you can walk down the, sidewa the sidewalks are just covered with gobs of tobacco spit all the way down and how disgusting it was and they did it inside and spat all over everything and uh, she's scathing of Americans she absolutely hates them and uh, I just love the book it made me laugh so much and uh, I wrote it down some of the things she said about Americans and typed them up and had them in front of me as I was and and uh, as I was writing and honor is not half as scathing as, as Francis but she finds things very frustrating that Americans um, to her, they seem materialistic. They only talk about themselves. They don't know how to converse. She talks, uh, Frances Trollope says, oh, American women don't know how to hold them. Their, their posture is really bad, and they walk flat-footed. And uh, all the, just things that goes on and on. They're very proud of their country, and they're very patriotic, and, and they eat too fast. They eat much faster than English people. And everything's got corn in it, and she's sick of corn. And so I took bits and pieces of this. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't agree with all of that list, but there are some things that I do um, recognize uh, elements of it. Americans are very patriotic, much more so than British would be. British sort of like to make fun of their country, and, um, and that's, how they, that's how they show their love for it, if you can call it that. And uh, whereas Americans would never do that. And they are quite materialistic. I think it's born out of, uh, out of people coming to the States with nothing. And, and having to survive in the woods out of nothing. So the things that they do have, the few things they had, were really important to them and, and just trying to make a living. So it grew from there. Maybe it's turned into something else now, but that's what I think, that independence of spirit, that, that very patriotic feel of, of having um, left the motherland behind and trying to make its own way. It had a real effect on the character of the people and it's there to this day. Was it important for you for the main character to be British um, because you, since you've lived mm. here for so long? I, I originally I thought I'll set, it'll be all Americans, but then I thought I was too terrified to write a whole American cast. I don't know why, but I think I still wanted a foothold in, in England. And, and then I thought maybe the way to do this is actually to have the main character be English so that she can see America with fresh eyes, mm -hmm. so that it's a different way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I also found, as I was writing it, that it kept reminding me of when I came over here in 1984, and everything that was new and different to me, how, how different the sun was when across the sky in a, in a different trajectory. Um, and the water tasted different, you know? And I know if you've ever been to the States and tried to have a cup of tea, even if you bring your own tea bags, it tastes different. I don't know, the mineral content is different or just silly little things like that. And they're not silly. It's actually those little daily things that, of, of sensory perceptions that make up our daily lives and whether we're happy or not, I mm -hmm. think. And I just remember walking down the street in London and smelling the, 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 the diesel fumes of the taxis were completely different from any car I'd ever smelled in the States. And being in a northern town and smelling a coal fire for the first time was just like, what is this? And all that stuff, it just makes you feel kind of alien um, and, and, that, and alienated. And that's what Honor has. When she's in Ohio, she's like, the sun just is so bright to her. And the grasshoppers and the crickets, everything makes so much noise. And the thunderstorms are so violent. Everything's so extreme to her. And uh, it takes her a long time to discover things that she, she likes, but she does. There are fireflies, if you've ever been in the States, if you've ever seen fireflies or lightning bugs, as they call them, in the summer, they're amazing. These bugs that flash as in the evening, summer evening, and um, maple syrup, she learns how to make it, and it tastes so good. And, and, corn, and corn, when she eats corn? Corn, when it's fresh, oh, there's just nothing like it. American corn, when you just get it from the field, it's really fantastic and peaches and there are a lot of things that are great it's just it takes a little while to get to get used to it
Do you think it took you so long to write about America because you needed to put some distance yeah. between it and you? I think so. I, I think, you know, the other, the first seven, first six books I've written have been about Europe where I felt slightly like I'm outside of it. And now, um, now I'm not so outside of it. And, and, uh, but America feels very far away from me. So it's easier for me to look at it with more objectivity. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, one, as I said, we, we would go back to the subject of contemplation and silence. Um, Honor, as I mentioned, is a Quaker. Were you a Quaker? No, but I, um, I grew up going to a summer Quaker camp. My sister and brother and I went for mm -hmm. seven summers, and uh, it had a really big influence on my life um, for various reasons, partly because my mother died when I was eight, and I went to camp soon after that. And it was very um, embracing. It helped. And uh, the, a Quaker camp is run, you know, it's like a summer camp, but it's more simpler. Um, you think of an American summer camp, you think of like horseback riding and sailing and it's all tennis. And we didn't have any of those. We had this very muddy lagoon to sleep in, to swim in. And we slept under these lean-tos that just had a roof. And the, when it rained, the rain came in sideways and got you all wet. And we went on a lot of hikes, and we made up a lot of games, and we told stories, and we sang a lot. And it was very simple. Mm -hmm. And every morning, 60 kids sat out in the woods for, in silence for 15 minutes. And, uh, and that really it grounds you. And I, um, even after camp finished, I got too old for it, I continued to go to Quaker meeting which is run in silence. You go on a Sunday, it's for an hour, and you sit in silence unless you feel moved to speak. And the idea is that um, Quakers believe that everybody has the same thing inside them. And you can call it God if you want, but you can call it anything. And it's, a, it's when you're sitting in silence, you're listening for that still point in you. And um, I loved going to meeting for that reason, and I more recently have kind of started going back again. Um, I feel like the world has gotten really noisy. And uh, you're asking, or the backstage, somebody was asking me before about festivals I've been to and uh, book festivals I've done. And I, and I said, I have, to, I have to admit that one of the things I remember so well about Edinburgh is how noisy it is. Because the tent, you know, there's like sometimes, I don't know if they've changed the traffic. It's not so bad today. But sometimes the traffic going around the square, you can't hear a thing. And, uh, a couple of times back, I was here with Maggie O'Farrell. I don't know if anybody was here in the audience from that. And there was a storm at the end, and the the, the tent went, <laughs> and nobody could hear anything. And it's it just feels to me like the world is getting noisier and noisier and noisier, both both physically noisier and and almost mentally noisier too. We're expected to have opinions and express them all the time, even if it's not saying it. It's like typing it, he's putting it out there on the internet, and everything's just, it's exhausting. And I, um, I, I like going to Quaker meeting because once a week I don't have to have any opinions. I can just sit there and actually try to drain away all the words from my, from my mind, and, and that is a real relief. So it was a great relief to write a character who also values silence and is, is very quiet. She also uses silence as a weapon, doesn't she? Yes, she, she, um, she goes through a period, she, she goes, gives, gives her family the silent treatment for three months. Um, it's out of desperation because she feels out, out, of, uh, out of sync with them. And, um, and she discovers, yes, how, how incredibly powerful that is. And if you've ever tried that when somebody's angry at you and you just don't respond and it makes them absolutely furious and then worried and insane, it's a great technique actually and I, I often uh, I know it doesn't sound like it now because I'm total motor mouth um, but at the moment but I have been trying to say less mm -hmm. and uh, you know thinking I think do I really need to say that just be quiet a little bit quieter you know maybe say a, a, a few sentences less per day than I normally would um, and but people find it very hard to um, cope with the silence between if you're sitting with somebody you know, you know a really good friend when you can sit in silence as happily as talk to them. You know, that's a really good friend where you can be companionable in silence. And the, um, the quilting group I belong to, it's really interesting. We do talk a lot, but we also happily sit in silence. And I, it would be interesting to have another member come in 
who hasn't done it before and see how they respond and they, because any group is like that you know and if there are any book groups out there you probably have that as well are there moments when you can actually just be silent for a minute or do people always do you have that one member who always feels the need to jump in with their opinion because oh there's some silence got to fill it did you read sarah maitland's Book of Silence. I indeed I did, and because um, of knowing your famous um, research, you know. <laughs> I I definitely read, and she she goes up to um, one of the the Scottish Isles mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and lives for a while, and I think she doesn't speak for six weeks at one okay. point, and um, and has it's it's like hard, it's like physically hard for her to to speak, and uh, I really I thought it was a great book, and it's really weird because Sarah has just written a, another book called Gossip from the Trees, and my next book is actually about trees, and I thought, I think I just need to go to Sarah and say, so what are you working on now, <laughs> so that I'll know what my next book's going to be about, because I'm just paralleling her. I wondered whether there was a moment of inspiration for the last runaway. Yes, yes, there was. Um, I went, the book is set in Ohio, just outside a town called Oberlin, and uh, there's a college there which was founded in 1834, and I, I went there uh, as an undergraduate, and uh, it's a, quite a progressive place. Um, when it was founded, it was the first college in the States to admit both women and African Americans as part of its student body. And it's always had that kind of radical feel. And I had a great time when I was a student there. And I recently was, in the last five years, have been asked by the president of the college to be part of a, an advisory group who comes back and visit and, and gives advice to the college. So I was there for a meeting in 2009. And at the same time, Toni Morrison, the novelist, was there to unveil a bench, a commemorative bench because Oberlin was a really important stop on what was called the Underground Railroad. It's not a real railroad, but it was a network of people in the run-up to the Civil War in the 50 years before the American Civil War. People who were sympathetic to slaves and were trying to help them escape their owners and get freedom in Canada. And um, Oberlin, for its geographical reasons and political reasons, because it was a very radical place, became a really important place where there were safe houses where runaways could stay. And um, so Toni Morrison was there to unveil this bench because years ago she said in an interview, you know, there are no monuments to slavery in this country. There are no statues. There's not even a bench by the road where you can go and sit and think about what slavery has done to this country. And somebody took up that idea of there being a bench by the road. So they've started putting benches at places of historical significance for African Americans. And Oberlin was one of them. So um, she was unveiling the, the bench. And when I was standing there watching this and listening to her speak about it, I thought, wow, I'd, I'd been thinking I wanted to write a book about the States. It's, it's set in the States at some point. And, and I thought the Underground Railroad would be a great subject because it's about this sort of secretive, it's very anecdotal. Secret, secret network. We don't. We know a lot of anecdotal evidence, but we don't know have have a lot of. There's a lot of gaps and a lot of playfulness. And and it's it was a, a movement by ordinary people. It wasn't you know it's, it, nobody special except people who are willing to take a risk. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's right up my alley. So I want to write about that. And presumably you learn about this in school in the states, do you? Because yeah. Yeah, it's. I know outside of the states, it's not. We heard don't of. hear. No, but it's. It's uh, every school child learns about Harriet Tubman. She was the most famous um, person working on the Underground Railroad. She had been a slave who escaped, and then she decided to go back and help others. And she led about three hundred people to to uh, freedom. And it's an interesting movement. I mean, it's a very popular part of American history to teach, but. The reality is um, maybe, uh, they estimate now maybe 30,000 slaves escaped over the course of 50 years using this um, method, this escape route. But uh, if you compare that to in 1860 when there was a census, there were six million slaves. So it's a tiny, tiny amount. But I think Americans emphasize the Underground Railroad because it's really important to them as a, as a, a, a positive part of American history and what was a really grim um, slavery being such a grim uh, part of it and, and a shameful part. So a lot of people now play it up because I think they want to feel like there were 
white people and black people out there doing the right thing. Because mm -hmm. both the African American and white people worked on the Underground Railroad. And, and the Quakers were? Yes, Quakers were instrumental involved. in yeah. it. Um, yeah. They were early, they're, because of their belief in the equality of all people, they were opposed to slavery. And uh, a lot of them were early abolitionists and a lot of them risked, you could be uh, fined or imprisoned if you helped runaways, but they took that, a lot of them took that risk. But then a lot of them didn't. And that's what, in a way, what the book is mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Honor is opposed in principle to slavery, having grown up in England. Um, and, but when she's there and she lives in a country where slavery is part of the, the economic foundation of the country, it's a, it's a lot harder to put those principles into practice. Um, especially if you could be fined or imprisoned and lose your farm as a result. So she has to um, decide how to take her stand. And the, you, there are a lot, uh, do you use real hi historical events in, in the novel, like the law and so yes. on? Yes, it's set in 1850, which is um, the year uh, Was there a, a particular reason there was, for that? Yes, yeah. because there was a law passed that year called the Fugitive Slave Act. And it was um, not only could you be imprisoned for helping runaways, but uh, there were slave hunters of whom Donovan, who you just met, is a slave hunter. And if a, the, the law changed, so the slave hunter, if they said to you, you, go and help me uh, catch this slave. Um, if you said, no, I'm not going to help you, you could be imprisoned just for that. And um, so people were really rebelled against this. Uh, they thought it was very unjust. Uh, law, and so I thought I'd set it there. I didn't want it to be a civil war novel, but I wanted it to be part of the run-up. Uh, Tracy, how tricky was the language? The these, the those, yeah. the thankies. Yeah. <laughs> was, it, was, was it really it, difficult? It is do difficult. Doing uh, historical dialogue is always, a, is always a, a minefield for a historical novelist because you, you, want, you want to sound authentic but not too authentic because if you do, it just sounds too oldie-worldy, you know, like mm -hmm. traveling on the Shakespearean language kind of feel. And I, I, uh, but the thing is, Quakers at that time used thee and thou instead of you and um, thine, and, and it was, I, I had to just grit my teeth and do it. And after a while, I got used to it, and I thought, hopefully the reader will too. And I think, um, you know, I think it's like, if you're reading a book and there, somebody's named, like the character is named something, a, a name that you don't really know how it's pronounced, you kind of blip over it, or you come up with your own little, it's, it's like you blank it out. You don't even see it after a while. I just hope that that's what people do with the thee and the thou, and I think so, because I haven't had any complaints about it yet, but maybe people are just keeping quiet. But it, it would have been impossible for me to change the, um, just have her say you, it wouldn't, everybody would have said that doesn't make sense. So it, it, it's a, but it is always a tricky one. And what I try to do with the language, like there's uh, um, people in Ohio tended to say thank you instead of thank you. So, I used that, but I didn't use too many of those types of slang words at the time because then it just feels too, too much like I'm trying too hard. So I choose a couple and have, have them throughout it and, and hope that that gives enough indication of, uh, of, a, you know, of what the time sounded like. I just wondered whether you ended up addressing everyone at home as the end of that. No, I managed to <laughs> avoid it. I managed to avoid it. I, I, it's sometimes when I'm writing during the day at the end of the day when I finish and I come out of my office, I do feel like I'm in a different world. I mean, not literally, but I, I feel very distracted and it takes me a little while to sort of rejoin my family, but um, not to the point of saying the and thou. Um, the, in, in this book, as in Remarkable Creatures, there is a friendship between women. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about the, the, particularly the two women who yeah. befriend Honor, who are amazing women. There are two women. One is uh, um, a milliner named Belle Mills, and I got her name and her profession from um, a town in Ohio uh, that I was originally thinking of setting part of the book in, and I was reading these historical documents about the town, and there was a list of, um, of, of shops on the main street in Hudson, Ohio in the 1850s, and one of them was Bell Mills Milliner. And I thought, what a fantastic name for a milliner. Um, I'm gonna use her. And originally in the first draft, she, uh, when I started writing, she had a tiny part. Uh, Honor stays with her a couple of days and then goes on. And um, 
but Belle is, is from the South and she helps slaves. She's sort of completely changed her attitude and she's very tough woman. And um, she's nothing like you'd expect a milliner to look. She's not frilly at all. She kind of looks like a scarecrow. She's very thin. She's got jaundice. She's, uh, she uses a shotgun willingly and uh, makes very strange hats. And I just thought, I think that Honor actually needs her. She needs her. So the end of the first draft, I brought her back in. And then when I redrafted, I gave her a much bigger part. And I think that she, re she is like, Honor sees what an American woman can be like who she could be friends with, who is tough and independent-minded and accepting, too. And, um, and then the other woman she meets is Mrs. Reed, who is African-American, uh, a runaway slave who is now free in Ohio and helps runaways. And Honor gets involved in the Underground Railroad with, uh, via Mrs. Reed. And Mrs. Reed is pretty tough, too. And um, the, two of them, the three of them, uh, I don't want to say too much no, more because no. there's a, you know, it's, it's a very important plot. But they, um, they teach her how to become an American. Now, um, did you make a hat? I didn't make a hat, but um, when, when Belle, I did go to see a hat maker um, in a class and watch them making them. And uh, that's one of the joys of research is uh, when I realized, I thought I'd done all my research and then I thought, oh no, Belle Mills needs to have a bigger role. I gotta learn out how hats are made. So I went and found out and uh, that was a lot of fun. I get a sense that the research is the best yeah. part. The research is by far the best bit, and um, but I would never do the research if I didn't have a book to write. So it's it's always a you know it's a, a balance. But yes, I love doing the research, and the, the, it pulls out stories that I would gives me ideas that I would never have had otherwise. So before we take some questions, trees, the trees, next book. Yes, um, the book the next book is about uh, is about immigration between the UK and the US, and it's it follows one family called the Goodenoughs. Um, from England to the U.S. and back um, a couple of times. And, and it takes place over a, a couple of hundred years, so there are different sections. And um, it's about moving, why a family moves, why people move, and what they take with them. And uh, what they take with them are trees. People used to bring fruit trees, saplings of fruit trees, with them to the States if they wanted to retain the taste of their homeland. And, um, and there are also trees that became a craze to bring from the U.S. redwoods and cedars back to the U.K. And um, so it's about immigration and how trees, we think that trees stay in one place, but actually they don't. They follow us around. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's about that. It's early days, though. So, you know, in three years' time, I might, it might be coming completely different. Um, I'm sure you've got lots of questions for Tracy, so put a hand up and we bring a microphone to you. And if you could speak up, that would be much appreciated, please. Oh, I've stunned you into silence. We have ah, a lady in the front, we'll bring a microphone. This lady here, please. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, careful observation of people and their habits and characteristics is obviously a very uh, important part of your art. Yeah. Um, I wondered whether in the course of your 30 years in the UK, you've ever, ever had a list of British characteristics and habits that you found intriguing, perhaps even disgusting. <laughs> I'm far too polite to list, to tell you my list. No, um, I... Uh, I'm just thinking of a good way out of this one. Um, the, I think the thing I found the hardest to get my head around was the humor. And I think that that's probably true of most countries. Humor takes the longest to transfer culturally. And I remember the first time I watched Have I Got News For You, I didn't laugh once. And I, I, it took me years to get to, to accumulate enough cultural references to get it. And, and also to get the, um, uh, you know, the, the self-deprecation and the, the way people make fun of each other and that, you know, all these different, it's just, a, it's a very different from American humor. And um, now I can kind of flip back and forth between the two and, um, and appreciate both, but that was what took me the longest. People always say that Americans uh, We can't, it's okay, it's I'll, I'll repeat it, it's okay. okay. Yes, the uh, people say Americans have problems with irony. Yes, that is true. 
<laughs> it is very true, and I sometimes just laugh when my friends come to visit at how earnest they can be and, uh, and well-meaning, but you just have to, and watching my English friends teasing them, and it just, ah! You know, and when you can see both sides, it's very, it's, it, I feel torn sometimes, and I'm, I'm often asked if I'm Ameri if I, do I feel American or British, and it's, I go back and forth, but uh, that's one of the reasons. Uh, but you know, my list at the beginning, it's not that long, really. Of, of the, I, otherwise, I would not be here. I would have gone back. And uh, no, I'm very, very happy here. Um, and I have learned to love tea, though I have to say, when I have a cup of tea, if I think about it too much, I really hate it. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's this. Ah, it's like dishwater. You know, it looks bad, it tastes bad, and so it's very rare. But but. On the other hand, sometimes a cup of tea is exactly what you need. A coffee is too, too strident, it's too strong for the moment. And a cup of tea uh, punctu punctuates a moment, and that's, that's what it's there for rather than to taste good. So I, I get it, I get it now. <laughs> Any more? Yes, a gentleman there, yeah. there please. Hi, uh, the big red um, reminded me very strongly when I read it of um, Jane Eyre meeting Rochester for the first time. Uh, I know that very but was there any, uh, and obviously there's plot elements I don't want to talk about because that, uh, but uh, was there any was there any kind of uh, intention to undermine romantic love, romantic novel, romantic expectation? Yes, a little bit. Now it's it's so interesting that you should be you should have mentioned Jane Eyre and Rochester because I'm rereading Jane Eyre right now and. Um, Loved the. I just loved the scene when they first meet, and I I love the way they they flirt and they they make fun of each other. It's just fantastic. Um, the reason I'm rereading it is that they're translating it. My Italian publisher is translating it into Italian, and they wanted an introduction. They wanted me to write an introduction, so I'm I'm doing that and thoroughly enjoying it. But I would say um, Donovan probably does represent, you know, like what you would expect is the romantic ideal, but he's a slave hunter and he's abhorrent to her, to, to honor, and yet it's, it's all about her expectations of people, like just because somebody's a slave hunter doesn't mean they don't have a good part of them and she's attracted to him even though she knows she shouldn't be. And, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a different, there's a kind of um, undercutting of, of what and certainly her marriage is, is not a romantic marriage, and um, they often weren't in those days. Uh, you know, we have a fixation on romantic marriages, and that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of playing around with that. Any more? A, a yeah. lady here, please. Oh, sorry. sorry. I better not pop. <laughs> no. Loved the book, absolutely Thank loved you. it. Um, I felt you had an affinity with the characters, with the Bill Mills, the milliner, uh, owner. Um, I did it as an audio book, right. and the accent, the Dorset accent, was perfect. Oh, All good. the accents were very good. I was just wondering, do you have any involvement in choosing who actually does the narration, or does the publisher take that out your hands? I, um, some publishers do give me some, uh, some they, they'll send me uh, tapes or JPEGs of, or I mean M MP3 files and I listen to the various different possible uh, actors and help them choose that way. But I don't listen to tons, they'll give me like four and they'll say choose between these. And I remember, the, you probably listened to the UK version, the American version, um, they sent me four different women reading and it was really difficult because uh, they had to do, uh, honor is English, so they had to be able to do an English accent. And, and half of the book is letters honor writes. So those letters would have to be with a Dorset accent, or at least an English accent. And uh, uh, most of them, m most of the r r readers couldn't do that. But they could do, um, one of them was an African-American actress, and she did Mrs. Reed beautifully. And I thought, oh, but she had a terrible English accent. And others didn't have, you know, had one but not the other. And some sounded too old because Honor is only 20. And so it's very, um, it's, it's interesting about voices when you hear audio voice uh, on, on dramatizations. Um, they, you usually have, a woman can do men, uh, men's parts, but if you have a man doing a woman's uh, uh, voice, people just think it's ridiculous. 
And also you can have a younger woman doing an older woman, but an older woman doing a younger woman doesn't sound so good. So there are all these weird rules to it. Um, but I just tried to get the best, you know, I, I, I helped them choose, but I wasn't the final choice, I think. So yeah, yeah. Well, well chosen. Thank you. There was someone, yeah, sorry, yes. Oh, yeah, got it. Hi. I've always thought that with your books, all the research you do could be enough information to write a master's dissertation. <laughs> so have you ever considered in another life, if you didn't go the creative writing route, you would have become a historian or you know, studied history and written dissertations about all these things that you write in your books? I, um, I, I couldn't imagine really writing a dissertation. I mean, I could imagine writing a dissertation, but what I think I'd prefer to do is write a nonfiction book that the public would read. Because the problem with dissertations is they get accepted, you do your viva, and it gets passed, and then it gets put into this vast storage place somewhere. Nobody ever reads it. But I, I, I've wondered about nonfiction sometimes, but I find the, the few times I do write something nonfiction, like a little, you know, a short article for something. I just finished an article about Dorset where I, I have a house and I spend a lot of time for the BBC Countryfile magazine. And uh, you know, it was only 2,000 words and I sweated more over that than I do ever about 2,000 words of fiction because fiction, you can make it up. You can make it up, it's fun. It's, it's, like, it's like, I don't know, it's like painting Jackson Pollock or something. You know, it's like, woo, where, where is a, Nonfiction is like a watercolor, you have to, not watercolor, it's like uh, yes, uh, acrylic. It's just, you have to be really careful and you have to get everything right and you have to footnote everything. And I think I would just find that really um, frustrating. And I mean, I say that, but a lot of my books, like my, my last book, Remarkable Creatures, which is about Mary Anning, a real woman who really existed, you know, uh, I had to stick with the biography of her life. But luckily there were a lot of gaps and a lot of places I could fill in with fiction. And the trick was just to weave it so that the fact and fiction felt smooth. And, um, and similarly, in a way, with The Last Runaway, all the characters are made up, but the, but the milieu isn't. And the, and the, the, the history is, is absolutely, you know, there are a lot of facts I had to stick to. But um, I prefer to, to, to make that, um, to play, to be, have the, the fiction allows me the ability to play around more than I think the nonfiction would. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry we've run out of time. Oh, sorry. Uh, um, don't blame me. <laughs> um, no, I, just, I talk I, too much. <laughs> not at all. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Thanks to Tracy for a wonderful session. Um, Tracy will be signing her books in the signing tent, which of course is to your left as you go out. I really would appreciate it if you'd give us a moment to get there before you. And so, thank you, thank you Tracy. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.